released Jesus. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way, his, was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the, ch are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. So word of the Lord written for his people. Oh, great. I don't know if two amens during the announcements is a record. I did have a counseling. Speaking of my advanced vocabulary, I had a counseling session recently where a woman was trying to explain to her husband, she said, your vocabulary, it's like it's hurting our relationship. You're just always kind of like talking over me with all your syllables. It's like, it's really like, it's, um, it's dividing, it's hurting our relationship. And he said, darling, I think the word you're looking for is estrangement. <laughs> We're going to have to have a second session. <laughs> you know, when I grew up Roman Catholic and um, I was an altar boy for a long time, and I knew that there was like Lent, and then there was like Easter, and um, I knew Easter was like a while, because this is the second Sunday of Easter tide or the Easter season, which is 50 days long until Pentecost if you do church calendar stuff. The, the problem with like independent churches like ours is, do you realize that we like, in trying to be a little liturgical, we basically just took on the fasts and none of the parties? Do you realize this? It's a problem. Like, it's like, yeah, let's do Lent. Let's do Advent. You know, it's like, let's do the, like, waiting and the crying and the fasting and none of the celebrating. You know, like, we'll do that just one Sunday, right? Easter is 50 days, and then it's another feast, Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, woo -hoo! 
right? And it's just kind of like, well, we'll just, we're, you know, we just finished, you know, fasting all through, you know, Lent, and I guess we got nothing to look forward to until Advent. <laughs> so we're waiting until the next waiting, which is a little strange. Okay, so it's the second Sunday of Easter, and Jesus is risen from the dead. Okay, we're still celebrating that. We're going to celebrate that basically forever. Basically, literally. Okay, and so ever since the very beginning, Matthew's gospel says that there were gainsayers of the resurrection from the very beginning, right? That there were certain Jewish leaders that were invested in Jesus' death, saying to the soldiers, look, if you say the disciples stole the body, we'll back you up if, if anything happens at your job. And, um, you know, in seminary, you have to read all these, like, anti-Christian kind of books. And over the years, the Bible has weathered a lot of this stuff really well because it has a, there's an embarrassing wealth of manuscript evidence and extremely ancient traditions that support all of these things, and they come from extremely trustworthy sources and all this sort of thing. But, but in the last, say, 150 years, the sort of—not really new, but in some ways the more popular way to attack the story of the resurrection— is this idea that um, the, the gospel writers, they wanted you to believe a certain thing. And so they shaped this whole story about Jesus and the gospels so that you would believe the things that they want you to believe about Jesus, right? And when people are trying to take you somewhere, when they tell you stuff, you can't really believe them. Look, there's probably pieces of it that are correct, but any place that matters where like, they want you to believe something rather than something else, they're going to shape the whole narrative and storytell it in a certain way that it's no longer really testimony. You know what I mean? Now, that has kind of a, like, surface plausibility to it. Because um, we all know that's true, and we all know people we think that about. And especially right now in America today, right? Like, it's funny, the gospel, gospel word gospel means good news, Right? which is literally the exact opposite of most of the news we hear, which is false bad, right? And, and Americans right now, if being polled, we have never trusted public people who tell us stuff less than right now since we've had any kind of way of measuring it. Now, it's probably not the worst it's ever been, right? Like most of you study the eras of yellow journalism stuff in American history. Like there have been all kinds of things where people didn't exactly tell it exactly the way it was. And the reason is because— they're spinning a narrative. They're storytelling, right? So right now, at this moment, culturally, we're more prone to believe this objection because we believe this about everybody else, right? So why not John? Why not Matthew? Why not Mark, right? They're all trying to get us somewhere. Why didn't—why why believe they didn't sort of like mistell it, right? Well, partly it's because they explicitly said they weren't. But they also explicitly said that they were telling us a story. Right? John's Gospel says it this way at the very end. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Right? But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. You see, it's very clear he wants us to get to a certain place. He's telling us about specific miracles so that we'll believe with the result that by believing we'll have life in his name. Right? But he also says at the very end of the next chapter to seal up the book, he says, this is the disciple who testifies to the things who—and wrote them down. That is, it's me. I'm John. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. 
okay? So he's like kind of coming out who the author of this is at the end because it's been anonymous all the way through. And then he says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were, I suppose not even the whole of the books of the world would have room for the books that would be written. So he says, this is a disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. So he's saying, listen, I'm one of Jesus' disciples, the person who wrote John. I'm one of Jesus' disciples. I'm testifying to the truth. That is, I'm telling you that I saw these things myself. And I'm also telling you that I am the one who actually wrote them down. There's nobody between me and this writing. So this thing that you received, the Gospel of John, is from a disciple. I saw these things with my own eyes, and I wrote them down for you. So that you have first-person eyewitness testimony. Now, do those things go together? Right? See, see, part of the problem is the entire fallacy that everybody who is telling a story is therefore not testifying. Now, on, on one level, first of all, that's just wrong. The Gospels are given to us as testimonies. John's Gospel uses the word testimony 16 times. It's like it's a big theme. He's like, no, no, no. Jesus is saying, no, what I'm giving you is testimony from the Father, and it's valid. And John is giving us valid testimony from the testifier, that is Jesus, of the Father. The whole structure of the Gospel of John is he's saying, I'm telling you a story about testimony, <laughs> right? The second thing is the whole problem of psychological transference. There's this, there's this place in The Princess and Curdie by James McDonald where he says, where there is no truth, there can be no faith. Meaning, when people don't tell the truth, nobody believes anybody, right? And what that also means is, is that if you live in a culture where people don't tell the truth and nobody believes anybody, you tend to become less trustworthy yourself, and the less trustworthy you become, the more you assume everybody else isn't trustworthy. Do you understand? And so the least trustworthy people are the least trusting people. Now, I don't want to impugn a whole vocation, but what some of these scholars are asking us to believe is that they who have come 2,000 years after the fact can read into the testimony of those who were martyred for the faith that there must be something wrong with what they've said such that we should believe them instead of the apostles, which has two major problems. The first being, the doubters always don't want to be doubted. I mean, I remember talking to a skeptical scholar who basically made this argument, and I just said, I don't know about that argument. I have a lot of doubts about it. And they're like, well, you shouldn't. The evidence for it is really great. And I was like, yeah, the doubters don't like to be doubted, right? Like, it's great for me to say, you should doubt everything else and then believe me, right? And then there's, there's a second problem, which is this. Who are you going to believe? Right? I mean, John, the one who was exiled, or somebody now who gainsays what he says later. Like, I, for me, like, I have never yet—I mean, I've met a couple scholars that are pretty amazing, who, like, went behind the Iron Curtain to teach about freedom and carried Bibles in their suitcases. Like, there's a lot of—there have been some amazing martyr-hearted scholars, okay? Every vocation can have great men and women in it. But if we have to choose between the martyr-disciple apostles who were eyewitnesses and testifiers to the truth and— those who critique the use of their words and sentences later, thereby see it, saying that they can determine things in history past. I just, I don't believe it. I have, 
I have too much of a problem with the fact that this— because here's the problem. What will my children or children's children or my wife say about me when I die? Right? Because what normally happens at funerals is people tell stories. Right? Why do they tell stories at funerals? Why don't they recite facts? Why don't they sit around with like their like sloppy Joe and say, you know, Nick was, Nick was almost exactly six feet tall <laughs> and hovered around 207 weight-wise. And, you know, he, he, he definitely had two eyes <laughs> and a slight any belly button. Right? Like, he walked with a normal gait. That's right, he did. He did. He kind of walked through a normal gait. Right? Like, that's not what people do. They say, they say, do you remember the time when Nick thought it would be funny to give Lisa Dolliger a birthday present with a live python in the box? And then, do you remember how he apologized every year for 12 years after he did that? Right? Like, that's not really even funny, is it? But it's memorable. Right? We tell, we tell stories. But the stories we tell at funerals are stories that we experience that are actually true. Why? Because if anybody lives in any kind of a way that's meaningful, then a testimony about them has to be a story. You have to tell, you have to testify in such a way as not to just state the fact, but to carry the meaning. Otherwise, you're really not doing justice to the person you're talking about, right? This isn't the court of law. In a court of law, you don't want a story. You just want facts because we're just trying to simply determine whether A happened. That's it, right? So it's just the facts, ma'am. No storytelling. But that's not what the Gospels are. The Gospels are good news. They're testifying to the meaningful events of the life of Jesus the Christ and his apostles. What he did, why he did it, why he said what he did, what it means. And because of that, the testimony has to be a story. So the fact that the testimony is a form of story is no argument against it. It's what must be. It couldn't be otherwise. And if something couldn't be otherwise, it can hardly be a problem with the validity of something. Right? Now, why am I saying all this? What does it have to do with us? How is this devotional? What nugget of truth am I going to take away today from this sermon, Nick? Okay, the answer is that in churches like ours, sometimes we focus on, especially around Easter time, we focus on the fact of the testimony that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And what that means is, is that he died in your place for your sins, such that by believing and trusting in him and coming into mystical spiritual union with him through faith, you are pardoned and God is with you. Okay? That is 100% true. Now, the story of how it happens signifies more. And you and I have to actually enter into the story to get the full effect of the transformation. We won't change. We won't grow. We won't see the meaning and purpose. We won't be transformed. We won't become the new people Christ's death purchases without entering into the story. You, ha- you can't just believe the testimony. You have to actually enter the story. You can't, don't just believe the story. You have to believe in the story. And if you do one without the other, I think you can be saved. But I don't think that you will be enriched, supported, 
encouraged, developed, led, healed the way the life of Jesus is supposed to change us. Does that make sense? All right, I want to give you two simple, relatively quick examples. The first is, if we enter into the story—now, I'm, I'm just using this passage this morning. You could do this with all, the whole, whole of the gospel, the whole of the Bible, actually. What I'm saying about the gospels is true of Second Chronicles as well, right? One of the reasons why the Bible gives us so much narrative is because stories do something different to us than direct teaching, and we need both. The Bible has both in it, right? But it's more than two-thirds story, right? And so when we come to the crucifixion, one of the things— that's meant to come across, is you start asking anybody who hears a story that they are deeply connected to emotionally will start asking themselves or implicitly say, who am I in this story? Who am I in this story? Right? When we were kids, we would play out stories, and we would pick characters for ourselves that we would be. I was always—I was—turns out I was almost always a good guy. Now, I did have an older brother who sometimes assigned the bad guy to me. But right, that was just so he could be the good guy and beat up on me. Does that make sense? But when I got to pick my own character, I was always— like, I was always like, okay, this is bigoted, but I grew up in the 70s and 80s, okay? I was a cowboy, right? I was a knight. I was a—I was somebody that was supposed to, in my own cultural mythology that I had received, a good guy, right? So whether or not that could be deconstructed later, it still—it still functioned in my moral formation that in stories of conflict, I wanted to be the good guy rather than the bad guy. Now, here's the problem with that. And children should do that. That's how they should play, okay? They shouldn't be like, you know, okay, I'll be Pontius Pilate in this one. You know, like, that's not— how it usually goes, right? <laughs> but when you read the gospel stories and you start asking, who am I? There's who you want to be. And then there's who you are right now. And then you realize that in kind of a strange way, you're sort of everybody in the story in a different way. At different times. Because everybody in the story is entirely human, even Jesus in a way. And as you work through it, you begin to see, oh wait, no, I am like that sometimes. Or in the course of my life, I'm going to have that moment, right? And everybody struggles with this relative to morality, be being the bad guy, right? And there's a lot of bad guys in this story, isn't there? There's really only—there's there's like one—there's one unmitigated good guy— there's a couple pretty good guys, like Simon of Cyrene, like it's hard to fault him too much, right? Maybe he'd be like, I'm not carrying this cross. This is an injustice. Like the guy was literally walking by, it sounds like, right? What's he supposed to do, right? He's part of the systemic problem, but he's like, what is he going to do, right? And then, um, and then you've got the women who certainly thought they were doing a good job, crying. We'll get to them in a minute. And then you've got the criminal, right? Who's like, hey, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. We deserve this. You're like, but he is a criminal. Like, and he did something worth getting— crucified for, which is usually bad, all right? And people say, well, he was a thief. But, but the word used in the New Testament for thief also means something like brigand. So like highwayman, right? Like, I'll shoot you in the stomach and take your bracelet. That's what thief means in that context usually. Does that make sense? So he's not, he's not a nice guy. It's not like he stole a bracelet and like scampered off with it, and they're like, we're going to nail you to a piece of wood. You understand? Okay. So, um, there's kind of three episodes in this section. The first is Pilate with the crowds, right? And Pilate has determined, I shouldn't kill this guy. He's done nothing deserving death, right? And he explicitly says it. He says it, like, out loud. Like, that's my decision. Look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to punish him. I'm going to let him go. And they say, and then they kind of, they yell. 
And like the, the text actually uses like three, right? With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, right? Luke is being very clear. Like they, they, they stuck with it for a while, right? Have you ever had this experience where you say you're going to do something and somebody just says, come on, twice, and you give in? I'm, I, like, I remember the moment in my life where like, I, that was me. I mean, most people are like that. You're just like, people are like, come on. I, I was like, you know what? When people say that to me, I'm just going to keep saying the word no. And if they do it past the third time, I'm going to say, listen, you can say come on as many times as you want to, or you can try to gain some as many. The answer is going to be no. Okay? I started doing that like, you know, like 15 years ago. Man, it works like crazy. Because come on isn't a very strong tool. Right? It's like the, it's like the, the urge to smoke or to drink a Pepsi. You know, like, like, like it feels like it's a thing because you want to drink the Pepsi, but you just go no and it can't hurt you. You know? And so I just say no. And people say, like, come on, no. You have four kids. You have to do this or you go bankrupt, you know? <laughs> come on, dad. No. Come on. And they just, they go like in rotations, you know? <laughs> and so what you have here is you have a man who has a stewardship. His job is to dispense justice. He knows what justice is. It's perfectly clear, right? He, and he's chosen it, and he's told people what he's going to do, right? And they say no. Uh-uh. No, 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 right? And it's like, you know, people yell. It's a thing, right? And, he, and, and a, Roman's, a Roman leader's main job is to keep the order, right? Order is the, is the god of the Romans, whatever their pantheon might be. And his job is to keep order. And so out of, out of that fear, out of that desire to keep order, out of desire to like, well, why am I doing this? Like, have you ever had that moment where you're like, you're trying to do the right thing, and you're like, what am I doing this for? I don't need this kind of heartache, this kind of grief, right? Forget these people. If they want, they want their own guy dead, we'll just kill him, right? I don't know actually what on, went on in Pilate's mind, but what I know is that he relented, right? And you see, like, you're, we're supposed to look at that story and not go, well, it's a good thing he did, because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have died for our sins, and we wouldn't be going to heaven. That's not the way to look at that story. The way to look at that story is, I'm like that guy. If enough people gainsay me, if enough people yell, like if enough people shout at me on social media, or like try to make me look bad, or like, or I just know they will. I'm just, I'm going to go to my high school, and I just know if I even publicly say that I'm a Christian, even if I don't say anything about my ethics, like, people are—I'm going to get just gainsaid. I'm going to—the whole crowd is going to be against me. And I just can't—you can't live like that, right? And the answer is, the problem is you can live like that. Jesus lived like that. <laughs> Jesus faced so many crowds that wanted something different than what he was offering them. And he just gave them what he was offering them, and they stayed or they left. And ultimately, they did kill him. And they almost killed him a number of times, including his hometown. Right? It can't be done. It's been done by all the martyrs and by all the faithful prophets, right? And all faithful Christians. And the crowd is, is, it's, it sucks you in because there is, there is a sense, we're, we're just kind of herd animals somewhere down in here. And we just think that if everybody's doing it, then we can't be held responsible even if we know it's wrong. And we really don't think there's a price to be paid for going along with the crowd. We just don't really think there is. And there is. There is a big, there's a big one, right? Um, one of the things, so I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking like, I should, I should think of like how this is true for me. And honestly, you know what the example came to mind for me? The start, I, this, this is a two-year process for me. It's COVID. I can't tell you how many people chanted at me 
to do one thing or the other, that that was the Christian way, that that's what I should do, that I needed to stand up to the government, or I needed to stand up to the right wing, or I needed to do this, or I needed to do that. And if I would, you know, if I just did the right thing, then our church would flourish, and things would be good, and Christians would know where we should stand on this, and right? And I, I mean, just taking it from like all sides, and, and um, even in my own house a little bit. And, um, and, I, and I did not always do the best thing. And I had moments where I was like this close to being like, screw it, I'm just going to do what I, what I think is, what I personally think is best, right? Which is not the job of a pastor. It's not the job of a leading public figure who's supposed to shepherd the whole flock of Christ. My opinions do not matter, right? Just like, I don't want to know my doctor's opinions. They're personal opinions. That's not their job. Their job is to try to heal my body. Now, they may be opinionated about their professional views, that they're trying to share with me. And there's like a fine line there sometimes, but I don't want to know whether or not they like the bucks. I don't care, and I don't want them to share with me, right? I want them to give me—help help me if they can, or tell me what to do, right? Similarly, I'm your pastor. Like, some of you want to be my friend and want to know if I like the bucks. It's fine, right? But the point is, it's not my job to do that. It's my job to, to discharge the duties of my ministry, which is to shepherd the whole flock of God, which is not to unnecessarily estrange anybody in matters that are disputable, and to— marshal and shepherd the unity of the church in the truth of God. Right? And so I just, man, it's tough two years. But this, it came to my mind sometimes, like, you know, if I just do, if I just say, forget it, I don't need this grief. Give the people what they want. Right? First of all, it wasn't the people. There's all kinds of different people. Just like that crowd wasn't all of Jerusalem. It was just the people that were there right then yelling. Right? Remember that in your inbox, in your social media feed, and when people are, like, reading you the riot act. They're not everybody. They may be adamantly yelling at you because they are in the vast minority of what people would want. Right? And so we both have to recognize, you, if you, when you see yourself in the crowd, when it's expedient, I just chant with everybody else. Even if the object of my chanting is somebody as pure or something as pure as Jesus himself because I don't want to stand against the crowd. Or, even when it's my responsibility to dispense justice, I'll get pushed around by people because I'm not going to do even what I know is right. Right? That's me. And don't think that if you wouldn't do it for the thing that's actually in your life, that you would do it for Jesus. Because for a lot of us in the culture that we're in, that has directly to do with us being public and open about the fact that we belong to Jesus and are his disciples. And we implicitly deny him in lots of ways before the crowd, right? And then you, you get to the, to the uh, watchers and the women. So Jesus is carrying the cross. And there are people who, who are doing what seems ostensibly noble, right? Especially there's a group of women who are literally weeping and crying over what's happening to Jesus, right? That sounds pretty noble, right? Like these women are the good guys, right? Um, these are the only people who seem to be broken by this situation and by what's happening, right? And these are the people who Jesus speaks to and gives the sternest or starkest warning that you can imagine, right? He turns to them, he says, um, he says, women of Jerusalem, don't cry for me, right? Oh, I have your good. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed is the barren woman, the woman who is never born and the breast that is never nursed. Then, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. That's a quote from the prophet Hosea. For if men do these things when the trees green, what will happen when it's dry? Now think about this. 
It is a true tragedy that Jesus is being executed by the Roman government. It's a fundamental injustice in the deepest sense. I'll get to that in a minute. And they see that, right? You see how they're miles ahead of everybody else? They're still not at the truth, though. They still don't see what's happening. They don't see it. Right? And that's a problem. Because if you think you see it because you're ahead of the crowd, it's easy to think, I see it. I see what God's doing. I understand. This is like— and you're responding passionately and emotionally and with like real spiritual fervor. And Jesus says, listen, you don't get it. You're crying for the wrong people. My death sentence is your children's death sentence. Don't you see? If a society, if a people, if the leadership of your culture is so corrupt that they'll murder me, what do you think is going to happen to your children and to you? What's going to happen to this people? What's going to happen to this country? Forty years after this, 37 years technically, um, the Roman ruler Titus, after Vespian, I think it was, because of the rebelliousness and the corruption of the Jewish nation, came to Israel, destroyed the entire country, especially the city of Jerusalem, right? Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, in which Titus killed more than 200,000 people so that the, the streets literally ran with blood. These women in their old age and their children. Do you understand? Like Jesus was literally telling them the day was going to come in their own lifetimes and the lifetimes of their children that was going to flow from what was happening right then that wouldn't be worth weeping about for his death, but for their own. And they didn't see it. Right? You see, it's really easy as Christians to think that because we have some scriptural insight and because we believe different things than the culture, that we're ahead of them and that we get it. Right? Um, what is that for us? Right? Well, see, you'll never even start to think about it until you really believe you're that character in the story. You are the weeping women. You believe. You see it. And you are expressing the appropriate emotion. Right? You're, you, you care. You feel it. It matters to you. You're weeping and following. And Jesus' words are, don't cry for me. Cry for yourself. Right? It's a tragic thing to think um, that we get it because we see that other people don't get it. I think that's one of the most common mental sicknesses in America. There's a, we have a lot of really common ones, but one of the public ones in the way we talk to each other is when we think that we get it because we can see that some other people don't get it. But seeing where somebody else is wrong is no sure thing to tell you that what you're doing is right. I remember um, trying to pastor during COVID and having some people say, Nick, don't you see that the way this, the, the country is treating COVID, they don't understand freedom. They don't understand freedom. We're losing our freedom. Don't you see that? Right? And then another group of people said to me, Nick, don't you see that, that Christians and other, like, conservative people don't want to, like, get vaccines and put on masks? Don't you see that they don't understand what it means to have solidarity, to, like, be part of a community? They're losing that idea. They don't get it. And the church without it is not the church, right? 
And I, and I was like, yeah, I see both of those things. Yeah, I see both of those things. But you know what else? I see a whole nation that it's lost its grip on dealing with and facing death. Loss. Being the perfect victim, right? Like, losing your freedom is a kind of death. You are going to die. And losing the people you love and their willingness to support you is a kind of death, and you are going to die. Jesus, in this passage, lost both. He unjustly lost his freedom that he deserved before a just judge. He did not receive what was due to him as a human being to be set free. And he deserved the solidarity of his people before a Roman magistrate. He deserved the Jews, who he was their Messiah. He spoke in their language, spoke their scriptures, taught them the way of their God. He healed their people. And when he stood before the Roman ruler and deserved the solidarity of his people, he got none of it. Right? And they killed him because both of those and everything else are the death that every martyr will face. And every human being will face death. You face it every day, all day, all day long. And until we deal with it entirely, completely, and deeply, we can't face any of the deaths with any kind of virtue, with any kind of solace. With, we'll be weeping for the wrong thing. And we'll think that we're right because we figured out that somebody else is wrong. Does that make sense? Listen, I have a lot of opinions. I think a lot of people are wrong about a lot of things, and it has not made me more right about the first thing. And it's really hard for me to keep remembering that because it's so exhilarating to know other people are wrong. You know? If we see this, it can lead to the escape from self-righteousness and hypocrisy. If you see yourself in the bad guys in these stories, it can help you escape self-righteousness and hypocrisy. It can help you escape false and ignorant emotionalism, like the, like the women were expressing. Right? A lot of times we'll, we'll be like all emotional and sentimental about something, and we really have not seen the truth. Right? It'll, it'll, we'll see the folly of testing God, right? Like three times, everybody says, save yourself. The leaders, you saved others— Surely you can save yourself. The soldiers, if you're a king, you could save yourself. Kings have power. I know that I'm a soldier. If you are king, you could save yourself. Now save yourself and show us you're a king. And then the criminal, look, if you're the Messiah, the Romans are killing us, right? Us, Jesus, us, we're on the same team. Me, a brigand who kills people for stuff, and you, this healer guy, like, we're being oppressed. Don't you see the systemic racism in these Roman people? Like, you're the Christ who's literally supposed to undo it. Like, how about now? Let's do it now. If you're the Christ, save us and yourself, right? Save yourself and us. There's only one guy who's like, don't you get it? Don't any of you get it? There's only one just man here. And so he asks for mercy. Right? And that, that'll change you. You live in that story long enough. You read it over and over again. You see yourself in all the villains. Because you're all of them. You're all the villains. And it'll change you, right? Now, with the one minute we have left, 
It's also true that you are Jesus in the story, if you believe in it. It's also true that you're Jesus in the story. That is that Je Jesus is the perfect victim, okay? There's, there's no story worse than the story of Jesus in terms of being a victim, okay? You may be like, Nick, I had a hard child. Okay, you did. Okay, listen. There's no story, formally speaking, there isn't a story worse than the story of Jesus, okay? He is the perfect victim. Everything bad that can happen to somebody happened to Jesus in a very short period of time, packed into a story so you can see all of it at one time. It all happened all at the same time. Now think about it, because you're really, well, yeah, but couldn't have God created a crucifixion that lasted like 17 days? That would have been more pain. Yes, it would have. But the extreme temptation of Jesus is that everything happened at once. Everything bad that can happen to a human being happened all at the same time to the man who said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Do you understand? So, if you think about it this way, Jesus is—he suffered the worst pain and death, the worst form of public humiliation that attempted to erase his very existence so that if his name was ever remembered, it would be remembered with the hatred of one who was crucified. He was betrayed by one of his friends— and deserted by the rest of them, right? He was handed over to be treated for justice by a person who didn't even believe in truth. He was testified against people for whom testimony was the most sacred thing in their religious tradition, but there was nothing but corruption in them. So the corrupt people got to talk to the judge that didn't believe in truth about justice and about what would happen to him. He was condemned, though everybody knew he was innocent, and to make it better, they decided to release somebody who was guilty of the very thing that they had found him guilty of, who was actually guilty. And what's worse, all the people asked for it and demanded it. All at once, all at the same time, all coming down. And he deserved none of it. And he was in the prime of his life. And he hadn't wasted his life. You know, there's some people who, like, they die at 33. Like, I was in the prime of my life, but you hadn't really done anything. Like, you, you weren't anywhere. It's not like we were, you were going to have, like, five more fruitful decades. Nobody on planet Earth would have had five more, more fruitful decades than Jesus. As Isaiah 53 says, who can speak of his offspring? He was taken away from the world. Right? Now, if you then read the New Testament, what you find is that um, that path is promised to you. Sorry, I'm flipping around. Okay. It's, right, that's your calling. The cross is your calling. It's very easy to say, Jesus died for us, so we don't have to die that death, so we are going to raise with Jesus, resurrection life. Okay, that is true. But see, here's the thing. In this life, what Scripture teaches is that both are true at the same time. That we are simultaneously— testifying to by our lives in Christ, the way of the cross and its suffering and death, and the resurrection power operating by the Spirit in us at the same time. So we're suffering and dying and living in the power of the Spirit. But the way Paul says it is this in 2 Corinthians. He says, though our bodies are wasting away, though inwardly we're being renewed day by day. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Like, if you read through that passage in 2 Corinthians, he's like, he's like, all this bad stuff happens as we walk in the way of the cross every day. We, we find our hearts under the sentence of death. 
It's like we're dying every day. And we're being resurrected from the dead every day. Every day. And the reason why then it's time to believe that, like, you are that soldier, you are that hero in this story is because you have to identify with Jesus personally. You are Jesus in that story. Because here's the thing, all that stuff's going to happen to you. Right? Um, There's a sense in which nobody dies with dignity. And everybody can. There's a sense in which nobody gets justice, and everybody will. There's a sense in which everybody operates like truth doesn't exist, and truth does. In all of these contradictions, everything happening to Jesus, all of the perfect victimization of Jesus is promised to his people. Through many hardships, we will enter the kingdom of God. Everybody who wants to live a God life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to save your life, take up your cross daily and follow me. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We were baptized into his death and raised to new life in Christ. Right? When you get baptized, it's not like, okay, I got baptized, so all the dying with Christ was before my baptismal date. And all, it's only resurrected life after that. No, because your death is going to come after that, probably, unless you get baptized a long time. You know? So, you see, you can't—don't just believe in this—don't just believe the story as a testimony. You have to believe in the story. Jesus lived with meaning and laid out a story that you are called to see yourself in. And if you're willing to do it, you will at different times and in different ways see yourself in everyone, if you're honest. Or even in Jesus himself, if you're willing to believe his own promises. And when you see yourself in the villains, it will chasten you. It will hold you fast. It will correct you. It will cause mourning in your heart. It will cause you to long to be a hero and to not live in accordance with that villain. And when you look at Jesus, you will be forced to face all of your greatest anxieties in the abstract, in the story. And he will say, what if you lost everything? What if, like Jesus, you were made the perfect victim? What if you lost everything that you deserved and everything that you had. And then, if you did so in God, he raised you from the dead. Then what? Could you, could you handle that? Could you accept it? Could you embrace it? Could you even find joy in it? In that you, the more it was true of you, the more exactly like the hero Jesus you would be, so that you took not just joy from the fact that you believed God would raise you from the dead, but that you were, like it says about the apostles in Act 4, counted worthy to suffer for the name. That there's a certain kind of even dignity to being in the way of the cross. The more of it you experience, the more like Jesus experience you experience, and that that's a dignity, not a dilemma. Right? And it would change you. It would, it would help you reckon with death, which is the most important thing you can possibly reckon with. Because Hebrews says that as long as you really do fear death, and most of us do much more desperately than we admit, it will hold you a slave all your life. Right? And that's not in the section about sin in Hebrews. It's about the section in which it says Jesus was a real human being. Why? Because real human beings live all their lives as slaves to the fear of death. That's a human thing. And that's why Jesus became a human being to face death with all its fears 
for us and then with us. Because if that really happens, truly, we don't just believe about the story, but we, we believe in the story. We inhabit that way of the cross and that resurrection ourselves. We will reckon with things that will set us free so that the peace of God can truly rule in our hearts. And only people who are sufficiently at peace can be secure enough to look outwardly and to really love. And if everything's going to be stripped away from you anyway in the horrific, undignified death of the cross, then why not give it away now? And you can give away your time and your money and your talent and your skills and your vacations and all of your best to everybody else before it gets stolen from you by sin and death and hell. Why not? Because even a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name cannot lose its reward in the resurrection. It'll change us if we don't just believe the story, we believe in it. And we let it work through us every day. Let's pray. Father, please help us to see, embrace, love, and cherish the truth that you are shaping us in the story of the true testimony about your life and death. Help us to not just believe and profess faith for salvation in the fact that we know abstractly you rose from the dead and died for us, but help us to inhabit the meaningful stories you created about yourself by your own actions to get our attention, to show us who we are, to lead us into new truth, to shape us as people. Help us to see ourselves as the same human beings that faced all of these problems, to know we wouldn't have been more noble than them, that we have these same dilemmas right now in our lives, and that you are calling us in the resurrected power of the Spirit and in accepting the way of the cross itself to live in resurrection death in all these trials of our lives until there is nothing but life that has swallowed up death. Help us to believe it in Jesus' name. Amen.